Hey family, Jason Anderson from New Song in Tucson, Arizona, visited us here in Orange County last week and shared from his heart on the topics of intimacy and discipline, and then also addressed questions on biblical judgment and God's unchanging character. I know you'll be so glad you took the time to listen. God bless. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for inviting me. It's a privilege to be here with you all. Um, I'll be honest with you. I didn't really prepare anything because God's funny that way. (laughs) That's typical at my house when I'm teaching is I just show up and say, hey, let's find out what God wants to say today. Um, So I hope you'll bear with me. It's hard to know what to bring to a new group. Uh, because I don't know you all, and you really don't know me. Um, and, and so I, I guess I, I just thought I'd just share what's been been on my heart uh, for our group in Tucson uh, recently. And uh, it, it's just been uh, a season uh, of really thinking about getting serious in our faith. I, I guess one of the one of the things that really stuck with us, we were, we were praying. Uh, in the new year together on New Year's Day. That was fun. Um, and, and just a verse that came to mind is one of my favorite passages, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Um, I don't know how familiar you are with that, uh, but, you know, Paul's writing the book to the Roman church, and, you know, he has so much good things in there. But Romans 12, he, he really kind of launches into uh, what it means to live as a Christian, because that's what the early church did. They, they lived like Christ. That was their goal. Um, and, and I think Romans 12, 1 and 2 just really started off really well. He says, you know, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. So already he's focusing their attention on their life, their lifestyle, their walk of life, wherever they were in life. It was very life Focused, And so he says, um, offer yourselves as living sacrifice because this is your spiritual act of worship. Mm. Think about that. Mm. That's the greatest worship we can give God, our, our life. And, and the way they understood that was the, the living out of their life. So it wasn't a mental ascent. It wasn't, it wasn't a proclamation or a declaration, although those were included in that. But it was a way that they chose to do every day, everything. How they greeted others, how they interacted with others, how they worked, how they prepared meals, everything. Uh, offer yourselves a living sacrifice to the Lord, for this is a, a, your spiritual act of worship. And then he goes on in verse 2. He talks about... Uh, what's supposed to happen as we live like Christ, as we live for Christ. And that is uh, that we are no longer conformed to the pattern of this world, but we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. So we don't, we don't live the way we used to anymore, but we allow God, we allow the work of Christ in us, the Holy Spirit that fills us to actually change our attitudes and our thoughts. And it's from the attitudes and our thoughts that we actually live life. Mm. Your, pin, your opinions define what you choose to do every day. They're, they have a huge impact on you. Not just your own opinions, the opinions of everybody around you. Mm. I, a great example is what happened to the world with COVID. Mm-hmm. The way everybody viewed and And think about how contentious it has been. And polarizing, just that one thing, just that one thing, globally. Our opinions about it affect the choices that we make daily. They affect the way that we interact with others. And they affect the way everybody else interacts with each other and with us, too. The reason why we're supposed to have transformed minds, it says in in Romans 12, too, is so that we can discern the perfect and pleasing will of God. Because that's the point, right? Right? So uh, one of the things that, that God has just really been speaking to us about is, you know, your, your thoughts and opinions um, are not disconnected from your body. <laughs> My mind isn't 
over here to the right or the left of me. It's, I mean, the, the Hebrew belief was your heart and mind, that, that was the same thing. So when you read in the Old Testament, it talks about your heart. It's talking about the will, emotions, the way you think, the attitudes that you have. It's centered within us. So the only way we really know what our thoughts and attitudes are is the way our body behaves. Mm. So God's really been taking us into a, to a period of looking at discipline, mm. which is a scary word for <laughs> all of us, especially my children. My children were always, they didn't understand discipline. It comes from the uh, Greek word mateo, which is the same place we get um, disciple. It basically means learning. One who learns is a disciple. So we talk about discipline and, you know, everybody, they flinch, especially um, if that's how we were raised as children, because that's what our parents understood. Um, we understood discipline to be punishment. That's never what it meant in Scripture. Discipline was instruction and correction for righteousness. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at um, spiritual disciplines, which is the way that we allow ourselves to be transformed by the practice, by the daily practice of things. Do we have any musicians in here besides Chris? Artists? Somebody who's worked a job for 10 or more years? <laughs> so what would you say your level of proficiency is at any of those things? Is it, is it very basic or you're pretty good at it? How did you get that good? Discipline. Practice, 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 practice. discipline. How does a professional athlete get to be a professional athlete? Because they think, I'm gonna be a professional athlete? Yeah. No, they work at it for years, decades, some of them. <laughs> so why, why would it be any different in our Christian Faith. Why would it be any different to live a Christian to live like Christ? It's not. It's not. We can't just decide in the moment, right? I'm. I'm going to be polite and kind right now. <laughs> if we haven't been practicing being polite and kind, because that's not our default. Because we haven't discipline. Because our body's disciplined itself to be, oh, maybe rude and short. <clears throat> Especially on the highway. I don't know. I, maybe that's something I've struggled with. I think of it as training drivers one driver at a time. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> We're um, I was reading. I was reading in a book, and I, I don't remember uh, who this person was uh, was quoting. It was a it was a, a famous athlete in um, maybe the eighties. And um, somebody had asked him, you know, how did, how did you get so good? And he said, it's, I practice the things I'm not good at. Yeah. I just think about that. Mm -hmm. If we practice what we're good at, we're not really practicing because we're already good at it. Mm -hmm. So we have to practice the stuff that we're not good at. Mm -hmm. Dang it. <laughs> right? <laughs> Never as much fun. Well, you kind of want to be good at it, though, right? Yeah, exactly. You don't want to practice things you don't want to be good at. And that's, 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 that's part of our, I think that's part of our cultural conditioning, right? Is, is I want to be recognized, I want to be recognized for what I'm good at. It's my value. Yeah, true. We find value in it. Thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely. As a matter of fact, our culture is keyed towards that. Your value is in what you do. How many times do you start a conversation? Hi, what do you do? One of the reasons why I love um, Catherine's mom and dad, Vern and Diane, I don't know how many of you know them personally. Yeah, they can. Yeah, is um, they, never, they never start off conversations like that unless they very quickly move past it. And that was one thing I learned. My family was not like that growing up. Um, my, my dad was in the military uh, so I was born in the military and then I was in the military. So that's kind of my background. And um, it's a meritocracy, which means you get recognized and promoted based on your performance. So that's kind of how home felt towards me. So, so we, we never, it was never, Vern and Diane both love to ask the question, how's your heart? 
I, I'll never forget that. That's all. Every time we came to visit, that was like the almost the first question they asked. Hi, it's good to see you. How was your trip here at Kosher Park? Hmm. It's beating. <laughs> I didn't know how to respond to that. I didn't know how to respond to that because my default was performance for acceptance. That's often our default in our approach to our Christian life. Performance for acceptance. The Bible has a lot to say about obedience and doing the stuff. James talks about you'll prove your faith by your works, which sounds counter to we're saved by faith in Christ, which Paul writes all throughout Romans. But it's not. See, here's, here's where the shift is. There's a, um, a theologian, Dallas Willard. I, he, I wound up reading a lot of his books in seminaries. Uh, but one that really stuck with me was, was The Great Omission. And he, he makes this statement. Um, he says, grace is not about earning. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is not about earning. We can't earn grace. Mm-hmm. Grace is not about earning, but it is about effort. Mm. You see... A declaration of faith in Christ or a mental ascent to faith in Christ or a change of heart for faith in Christ isn't the end of the story. Paul talks about, I run this race. Right. I press ahead towards the prize. What is, he talk- what is he talking about? He already has faith in Christ. Sanctification. He's talking about the process of becoming more and more and more like Christ every day. He writes about it in just about every single one of the letters that he wrote to the churches. Ephesians, he talks about uh, the purpose why we have the Spirit and the spiritual gifts and we're to gather in community is so that we can be made more like Christ as we interact in community. So we also can't do it alone. So this is kind of the journey that that God's um, kind of been taking us on is to to look at the spiritual disciplines. Uh, Think about some of your heroes in the faith. Great pillars of faith. They didn't get there overnight. I'm not saying they didn't have radical encounters and there weren't uh, some that didn't have that did have radical encounters and were instantly changed, but we often don't hear the story about how, how much time did they spend seeking the face of God? Uh, yeah. How much time did they spend in study, in prayer, in solitude, in fasting? Mm-hmm. Obviously I'm graded that. I am not. I have a hard time. That's the one that I have to practice more. God keeps telling me that. Get you hungry. So I just I, I just thought I'd, I'd share that with you tonight that, that I think God is calling us as believers not just into some, some flaky feeling but into a disciplined lifestyle of pursuit. Mm-hmm. The Old Testament says that our God is a consuming fire. And I remember a story about three guys who walked into a fire because they were disciplined, so disciplined, they said, we won't deny what we believe in. We won't bow down to you. Rack, shack, and Benny. Rack, shack, and Benny. <laughs> and there was another person in the fire with them mm-hmm. when they went in. Mm-hmm. Pre-incarnate Christ, yes. Mm-hmm. But they, that, that's discipline. Man, I'd love to have that kind of discipline. What's, what's fantastic is the statement they made before they were put in the fire. They said, even if we perish, our God is still able. Right. Mm-hmm. I love that too. Mm-hmm. If we that's die, it's gain. That's what Paul writes. To die, to live as Christ, to die is gain. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, so this this concept of a disciplined <laughs> lifestyle is all throughout the Old Testament, and it's not it's not to earn God's favor. It's not to to earn stature. Salvation. It's not to earn salvation. It's just an outflow. It's a result of their desire to be in close relationship with God. I think this is a season for me to learn this too. It's really easy in the military. They're disciplined for you. (laughs) Show up. 
and then they tell you everything to do. Getting out of the military, it's like, what do I do now? <laughs> and then, and then, especially walking into starting home church. Yeah. And now it's now it's all I you know every day I have to go. Okay, God, what do I do today? Because I there's no agenda. I don't have programs to follow. We don't have a plan. It's all it's all the Holy Spirit. So so I think it 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 falls on us as believers to seriously practice our faith, and it begins in private with God. It begins in that relationship, but it doesn't end there because Jesus said the law and the prophets is summed up in two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is just like it. Love others as yourself. Well, when we realize this is as, as close to hell as we're ever going to get, mm. but it's as close to heaven as the unsaved will ever get. Wow. And we're here with them. Why wouldn't we reach out to them? Mm. But it starts with with us being disciplined in our relationship with God. And the natural outflow of that is our compassion and care for our fellow human, our coworkers, our friends, our neighbors, our relatives. That's maybe the hardest, I think. So that's, that's where we are. Um, but uh, the second thing I'd like to do is um, I'd love to field questions that you might have, too. Mm-hmm. Something that came up last week I'd love to hear you talk about that we were talking about over the weekend is mm. a, a judgment in the New Testament. And we were talking about that. If you could unwrap that a little bit. Okay. Okay. Let me make some foundational statements. First... We have to realize um, we don't think like the authors of Scripture did. We have a different viewpoint because we do not have the same cultural context that they do. So there's a lot of points of disconnection. That's the first thing. The second thing is we have to remember that all of them, old and new, they're all Jewish theologians. Mm. Jesus was a Jewish theologian. So, so we're far enough removed from our Jewish cultural roots through Christianity that a lot of touch points and assumptions that they had, we no longer, we have to relearn them. We have to relearn them. So, so one of the things, uh, I say that because one of the things that you see throughout Scripture, and you have to look at it, is a cohesive story. You have to have a, a good biblical theology before you start having a systematic theology. Mm-hmm. So what I mean by that is um, a lot of our theological thinkers today, we like to put things in boxes. That's part of our cultural paradigm we like things ni- nicely separated. The chips are over here and the sauce is over here and we dip them, but we don't mix them. Unless you're making nachos, but that's a whole different thing, right? Okay, so so it's, it's, it's the same way when we approach scripture and concepts and theology. So we take judgment as Protestant, from Protestant heritage, um, from Christian and Protestant heritage, and we begin to separate it out. So we take all of the judgment that we read about and we put it here in this little box and we lump it all together. Jewish theology never did that. So we have to deconstruct that. And what we often see is we often see judgment balanced with mercy Mm -hmm. all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. As a matter of fact, I was just looking something up in worship. Uh, This is Psalms 103. I want to begin in verse 8 in Psalms 103. Uh, It says, The Lord is compassionate and merciful, very patient and full of faithful love. God won't always play the judge. He won't be angry forever. He doesn't deal with us according to our sin or repay us according to our wrongdoing. Because as high as heaven is above the earth, that's how large God's faithful love is 
for those who honor him. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far God has removed our sin from us. Like a parent feels compassion for their children, that's how the Lord feels compassionate or compassion for those who honor him. Because God knows we're how we're made, God remembers we're just dust. Mm-hmm. So, so this, this kind of gives us some more insight into to how Jewish thinkers thought the concept of shalom or wholeness. It's, it's not peace, it's wholeness. So they looked at things together. So, so we have to realize that always, 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 the Old Testament writers, the New Testament writers, they, they extolled the holiness of God. God's holiness demands righteousness. And so unrighteousness has no part of holiness. That's where judgment comes from. But with this holiness of God, always is paired his great and merciful compassion. So there's, there's two poles here. His holiness, which demands perfection and, and judgment, results in judgment. And his mercy, which forgives and brings grace, which is operative in the Old Testament, which a lot of people don't see. They say, oh, God's vengeful and wrathful in the Old Testament. No, he's holy. We're not. He is. But, but that's completely tempered with grace because he doesn't judge us according to where we stand. He judges us with grace. So, so really, when we follow him, when we seek to honor him, we dwell in the tension between these two things, mm-hmm. holiness and grace. Grace forgives all things. Holiness demands perfection. Can we be perfect? Well, with Christ, we'll be perfected. So we need grace because it's His grace that allows us to be perfect. You, you see how these two are inseparable? Mm-hmm. So this goes on all throughout all of Scripture from the Old Testament through the New Testament. As a matter of fact, that's why Paul writes in Romans and Corinthians about um, uh, sin entered the world through Adam but Christ dealt with it. So through one, one man, all sin entered. Through one man, all have been saved. You know, he, he's balancing God's holiness and God's grace. Mm-hmm. In between all of that is a whole lot of tension. And it's all in the, it's all in the, in the Bible. You said something this weekend that I thought was really profound. You said in the Old Testament, they missed his grace. And in the New Testament, they missed his judgment. Is that how you said it? Uh, something like that. Something very similar. So, so in the Old Testament, uh, what what the Old Testament writers show us is is a history of God's wrath delayed, 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 mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. constantly delayed. Mm-hmm. Genesis, from the very beginning, God's grace has been operative. You look in Genesis chapter three. What's the result of eating from the tree in the middle of the garden? Death. But did they die? Well. They did, eventually. They experienced a physical death, but they also experienced a uh, spiritual death. But when you look at the curses in Genesis 3, um, when he begins to speak a curse, he starts with a serpent, but, but before he ever goes past that, he, he provides the promise already. He's, mm-hmm. he's talking to the woman, and he says, your offspring will crush his head, and he will strike his heels. He, he's already from the very beginning, prophesying about the redemption that's coming through Christ. Mm-hmm. And then we get to Christ, and, and, and we have God's grace manifest amongst us, and he dies and he's resurrected, and the disciples are living it, and they're writing all about it, and people are not realizing that rejecting that grace brings about condemnation and wrath. And I mean, you know, Jesus talks about it, he says when we get to the end, there will be those who stand before me and say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this in your name? Didn't I do that in your name? And I'll say to them, what? Depart from me. I never knew you. So his, his wrath is operative in the, in the New Testament era, but it's still delayed. Mm-hmm. We, we have a chance to turn it around to our very last breath. Judgment, that issue, it brings up uh, the reality of a lot 
that is being taught in the kingdom today that has to do with God changing. Oh, and he's he's different now. It's a lot of times it's being discussed as if it's a brand new concept. But the first and second century church uh, debated hotly over this. Yes, they did. And our founding leaders in the faith landed squarely on the consistency of God's character. And I wonder if you could maybe God is that unchanging. Yay, church history. <laughs> so when I went to when I went to um, college the first time as a good Southern Baptist boy, not spirit filled, uh, I went to uh, Grand Canyon University in uh, Phoenix, and I, I was taking Bible classes, and we had church history. And you know where it began? Church history. It began in uh, the 1400s with Martin Luther. And it was boring. Oh my gosh. I got a D in that class. <laughs> it's a good thing I changed my major. Um, but when I went back to, to seminary um, these last few years, uh, I went to a, a spirit-filled seminary, Global Awakening Theological Seminary. And we had to take three, three semesters of history. And we went history of the church from the beginning of the church till now. So it was a lot of information. And uh, a, a lot of uh, these things that seem new, I'm glad you brought that up. A lot of these ideas that seem new, they're not. They're, uh, they're old ideas that are polished up and represented because the enemy uses familiar tactics. He likes to do that. This idea that God changes or he's different now than he was then. Um, or assigning certain characteristics of God based on which dispensation we're in, which is a whole different thing, dispensationalism. That's where it comes from. It's like, well, God's different now. He was this way then, and then he changed here, and now he's this, and now he's that. An extreme form of that is, is where they say, you know, there's monotheistic. So God of the Old Testament was like this. And then Jesus is like this, and then Jesus went away, and now it's the Holy Spirit, but really it was all ever only one person. Well, it was, but it was also three people. So, so an extreme form of that is to deny the Trinity. But, but what you're basically talking about, this, this, new, this old idea made new again, is called modalism, and it's a heresy. The early church fathers said it's a heresy. Because what it does is it takes the, the character and nature of God and divides it from itself. Scripture teaches us that God is unchanging. 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 His faith never failed. We read that in Psalms 103. He is the same yesterday, today. today and yes. He's consistent. So what changes? Uh, people change. We do. Perception. And our perceptions change, our opinions change, our ideas change, our styles change all the time. So, so the idea of modalism is it makes it easy to cope with the things that seem contradictory in Scripture. But, but when you begin to see the paradox in Scripture is actually God's way of instructing us because God isn't black and white. How many of you have figured that out in life? <laughs> we, we live in the middle of the tension between two poles. And guess what? God's right there with us. Because He is completely holy and completely merciful. He is completely perfect without sin, and yet he took all of the sins of the world upon himself. Mm. How do you do that? We can't conceive of it because we're limited. That's the best way to put it. I can't wait to be unlimited. We will be one day. <laughs> Perfected completely. I have a question? Yes. About five years ago, I think I read a book, When Heaven Invades Earth. Yes. Yeah. Bill Johnson. Good that, was a, that was a changer for me. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I think I've been saved 30, 40 years before that. But uh, the kingdom, the kingdom now theology is a big deal. It seems like a shift in the Western Christian movement of, because I've, I've done some 
research on church history as well. And that when that happened, I can't say he's the author of that movement, but he described it in that book in such a way that it really um, gave me insight into a, a, something that I'd never seen before. Mm -hmm. And I think that has been a really monumental shift. And from that shift, we now have people who have taken that in all kinds of different directions. Yeah, absolutely. And we have, you know, uh, even different levels of heresy now because of that, unfortunately. We also, on the flip side, we also have uh, levels of insight and revelation that many did not have before as well. Yeah. So I'm interested to hear what you might, how you might comment on the thrust of that book. Mm. I've read it several times. I love the concepts and the books in it. It, it was revolutionary for me as well. Um, I, I grew up my whole life in the Baptist church. Um, and that's very much, for the most part, uh, in what, uh, what we call the cessationist camp, uh, which is the works and moving of the Holy Spirit in power and signs and wonders was for the apostolic age, the New, the New Testament church. Not for today, because none of us are apostles. Nobody could do that stuff. So I grew up with that mindset. Um, <clears throat> uh, my last deployment in the military, uh, I began to have uh, encounters with the Lord that were life-changing that I didn't even realize till I went home. And my wife asked me one day, what happened to you? You're a different person. And I'm like, I don't know. Because I've talked to a lot of people who've had you know encounters with the Lord, and they're like, I was on my face and and I couldn't get up, and or I fell down, or there was a bright light, or they had a vision, or something like that. That didn't happen to me until after I encountered the Lord, and then I spent about a year on my face. Uh, in a, when we started learning about more and more about it, um, I had rug burns on my forehead. Actually, <laughs> it was funny. Um, but, but I don't think, uh, I, I think the best way to approach that is, is how maybe that message is tempered, um, in, uh, the global awakening movement, which is what I was a part of because Bill Johnson partners a lot with Randy Clark, who's the, um, apostolic leader of global awakening. And they talk about this concept. And it was one of the, one of the things we talked about in seminary as well, um, is it, this is actually another point of tension. Jesus inaugurated a new kingdom. He's the king. He's seated on the throne at God's right hand. So why don't we see that? Everywhere. Because he already did it, right? He, that was, that was 2,000 years ago. So what's been happening? So, so it's the tension of the now. The kingdom of God now, remember that was Christ's message, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's close enough to touch, it's that close, reach out and touch it. And the not yet, because Revelation tells us there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. So we're, we're in a tent, we're in, it's enough, yay, God loves tension, <laughs> right in the middle of it, the, the kingdom now and not yet. So, so yes, because we are united with Christ, the fullness of the kingdom is already accessible to us, but not everybody is united with Christ. So the fullness of the kingdom isn't manifest around us in everything yet. How, how can it be when we have people who are openly rebellious against God? So it really, we really are seeing a tension on earth. Now, uh, classic, classical cessationists and evangelicals will tell you everything's getting worse. The end is near. Doom and gloom and agony. Despair, despair. God, please save us. Charismatics will tell you the kingdom's getting better. And if you look statistically, the kingdom's growing. All the yucky is growing too. But the kingdom's growing. It's exploded all over the world, just, mm -hmm. just not so much in the West as it has in like South America and Africa and China and, and India. Pakistan, yeah, Afghanistan, India, I, everywhere. Mm -hmm. 
Jason, if I could comment on that also, um, for what it's worth, as far as I know, one of the first writers, one of the first theologians that began to talk about this subject, and I, and I think you Greg, I, I read the book in 2003 or four, uh, and it radically changed me, radically changed me. A lot of you know Scott Bailey, yeah. Scott Bailey gave me a copy of the book. He had bought a box and he was handing it out to everybody. And I read it on vacation. And now keep in mind, I grew up in a charismatic, spirit-filled home, saw miracles from the time I was a little boy. And I read the book crying, feeling like I have missed it my whole life. Amen. And my wife said, let me read another one. I said, no, I got to read it again. <laughs> We're on vacation. And I read it again. And then I gave it to her to read, and she felt the same way. And then we bought a box. And, <laughs> but the first, uh, the first person that I'm aware of, and there could be others, probably are others, uh, that began to touch on this subject of the kingdom now that I know of is Watchman Nee. Yeah. Mm. who a hundred years ago yeah. was teaching that God's work is in three phases. The first phase is God becoming the head of Christ. The second phase is Christ becoming the head of the church. And the third phase is the kingdom of this world realizing the kingdom of God and of his Christ. And what he means by that is that we're stuck in the middle due to disobedience. Yeah. In fact, Watchman Nee taught that disobedience and a lack of understanding spiritual authority is delaying the return of the Christ. Mm -hmm. It's delaying it, not salvation of the whole earth. Obedience is delaying the return of Christ. And so his thought process was... Once we get this obedience thing down, rebellion, yep. once we get that down as the church, we'll see his kingdom on earth. Mm -hmm. Leaving the timing up to the second, to us, you're saying the church is obedience. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I just, that oh. I struggle with a little bit. I, I think it's more in his power than in ours. I don't think we have the power we have or his coming. It just, just to, Personal thought. Yay! Welcome to the tension. <laughs> by the way, by the way, yeah. just to, to respond to that, I would like to point you to Exodus chapter thirty-three and Moses, because God said, "I'm going to wipe out all of the children of Israel and start over again with you." And Moses said, "Please don't." And and Scripture says that God changed his mind. His mind. So so did did Moses's response. <laughs> affect God in his sovereignty or did God already know that was going to happen? This is the great tension that we have. So, so I mean, what, what Watchman Nee was writing about, what Chris is talking about is this whole concept of the, it's the kingdom now and not yet, because what happens is, is, oh, if you go back to the garden, we were, we were never meant to do what God commissioned us to do alone. The whole point was we were to be in community, not just male and female, other humans, but with God at the center of it. He walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. They had intimate relationship with him. So he's, he's giving them authority and power and saying, now make the rest of the earth look like this, right? So, so, cessationists, evangelicals, they talk a lot about original sin. Mm -hmm. And everybody says, oh, sin is, that's when you do bad stuff. Well, can I challenge our paradigm with that? Because I've been being challenged about this myself. Sin, the sin nature that Christ came to deal with is not failing to meet the goal because that already happened in Genesis because there was one rule which we couldn't follow, humanity couldn't follow, and what happened as a result was death, which was separation from God. 
That's what Christ dealt with. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have transgressions and iniquities, but sin, that, that's why the Hebrews use three different words, sin, transgression, and iniquity, because, because they're, they differentiate. And when they were talking about sin all throughout the Old Testament, they're talking about this rebellion against God's authority and rule that broke relationship with him. That's why when Christ is presented, he's presented as prophet, priest, and king because he holds all authority. He holds priestly authority. He, he holds ecumenical authority. He holds ecclesiastical authority. And he holds governmental authority. He, it's all brought together in him. So, so that's what the restoration is about. It's about over. It's about replacing that rebellious spirit with an obedient spirit. So, so we recognize that we can't do it on our own because through Adam, we, we already, thanks for the fabulous track record, <laughs> and then proved again and again and again all throughout the Old Testament again and again and again. Christ came to deal with that, and the way he dealt with that is he made a way for God's Spirit to inhabit us. And, and the, the way that, oh gosh, English words, indwell, the Holy Spirit dwells within us. When you look at the way the Old Testament authors wrote about the Spirit filling us, it, they use a word called lovesh. Let me demonstrate lovesh. <laughs> I'm going to wear you, Holy Spirit, us. He puts us on. What moves the sleeves of your shirt when you put it on? Do, does the shirt move itself? It's the Spirit that moves the shirt. So, so the Spirit <coughs> powers our, our mortal bodies. Again, repowers it. It's de we're dependent on the Spirit. It, it's, it's how we move and live and have our being, like we said before. But if the Spirit doesn't put us on, then the, the Spirit can't take the shirt out. It can't take what it's wearing out to the rest of the world. So this is, this is, a, this is a collaborative relationship. That's the great thing about choice. The reason why he created us in his image is so we could choose to follow him. Otherwise, we're just robots. But when we choose to allow him to inhabit us, he takes us places we could never go. But it's, it's still our choice. And so, so when he's talking about obedience and the church coming into obedience and all, and all of this stuff, you're right. God determines it. He is absolutely sovereign. And in his sovereign will, he says, Beloved, what do you want to do today? Where do you want to go eat? I love having that conversation with my wife. Hey, where, where do you want to go today? What adventure should we have today? Instead of saying, hey, this is what we're going to do today. The... the when we begin to picture it in that different way, we understand that this obedience is not obedience out of subjection and oppression. It's obedience out of devotion and love and passion. That's what he's calling us into. Amen. Amen. Like, Amen. like what you started with, with, with Jesus, um, only doing what he's seen. That's right. Right. Because he had to or because he chose to? Because Philippians chapter 2 says he was obedient even to the point of death on the cross. That's the example he set for us. He chose it. That means Jesus could have chosen not to. That's powerful. Even ask the Lord to take that kind of That's right. But he said, okay, I'll do it. That's right. You know, Jason, if I may, there's two thoughts that come to mind in response to something that you to that question that you brought up. Um, and the first thing I want to say is, I don't know that Watchman Nee is right, and that leads to my first point, which is, I actually have an easier time believing, even though that that sounds difficult, I have an easier time believing that that Watchman Nee said and suggested, that then something that Jesus himself said, which sets up a paradox. Jesus himself said, no man knows the timing of the second coming, not even the Son. Only the Father knows. Now, if Watchman Nee said that, I'd go, heresy. 
Jesus himself said, I don't even know the timing. So now let's think about that for a second. Isn't he, isn't he the second He's person of the Trinity? Yeah. He is. But mm-hmm. what did he do when he emptied himself and became in the form of a man? He limited himself to time. God the Father is still outside of time. Jesus chose to limit himself. Live here on earth. Right. So, right. So I think in the moment that he said that, he didn't know. He was limited. God the Father knows. Right now, guys, I couldn't tell you. And he said, "No man knows," which is basically, "I'm a man right now." Right now, I'm a man. And so, so to me, that also underscores what Watchmen needs. Which is this idea of, it's a variable. It's not a constant. Yes. It's not a date. Right. Okay. And so many of us, many theologians throughout time have kind of defied that and said, I think I can figure it out. Oh, gosh. And they've come up with dates. Some of our own contemporaries. I remember when Chuck Smith came up with a date. 1978. <laughs> didn't he change it to 1988 when... I think it changed it didn't a few times. Happen, right. It didn't happen. Yeah. But when it and didn't I'm not picking on Chuck Smith. He knows, a, he knows... 88. Yeah. He, he knows way more than I do, but, or knew. But my point is, I believe it's a variable. And then the second thing, which, which is interesting, going back to church history, is to study church history and see something really fascinating. Every time the church was marked by... Walking in disobedience, the kingdom went nowhere. Yep. Went nowhere. There was no growth. Sin prevailed. So so I want you to think about the ebb and flow of church history. It wasn't always rapidly growing. So there was this rapid growth at the beginning, and then there was all kinds of rebellion after persecution. So 300 years of church persecution, and then Christianity was accepted by the government, condoned, and we entered into a season of a couple hundred years of the church largely walking in disobedience. The church, capital C, largely walking in disobedience. And guess what? Nothing happened during that time. Except the church split. Except for splits. Yeah. East East and West. The church Roman splits. Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church. Church splits. So Can't that's stop. possible yeah. just from disobedience. So it, it looks, and when you say split, it, the, the people splitting are thinking Reformation. I'm sure they're not saying, oh, we're just different. They're saying we're going to be better. Uh, with that first church split, actually it was, it was a matter of doctrine and interpretation. They were so focused on understanding and, and counting days and times and seasons and things like that. Exactly. For example, they thought that the the big issue that split East and West originally was, what day was Easter actually? Bingo. Split the church. Wow. Just to tell you how how sidetracked they got, right? So, but anyway, the point is, I think there's room for the concept that Watchman Nee is, is presenting, which is let's abandon our rebellion and our, um, and this is really hard for us as Westerners, right? The pioneering spirit to come under authority, to come under the authority of the word, come under the authority of the headship of Christ as the church, as the head of the church. And as we do that well, seems to me reasonable to think that God can then speed up time and can accomplish what he wants to accomplish more readily because he has yielded vessels. This is this is why it's so hard to talk theological concepts in, in just English and, and and unfortunately also in just Greek because a lot of our, our Bible translations, they're from purely Greek texts. So what happened is is the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into what's called the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, Greek written Old Testament. As soon as you start doing that translation, translation, you, you miss concepts because just 
I mean, just the idea of shalom. We truly translate that peace. That's a, that's a Hebrew concept. But that stops short. And so our understanding of these things is, is sometimes hindered. It, actually, I think it's often hindered by our cultural paradigms, uh, paradigms our understanding, and, and language. Exactly. Mm-hmm. 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 Because because you can be talking, you can be using the same words and saying totally different things, and and this is this is an example of it. That's that's why we have to go back to this concept of living in the tension, because we talk obedience, and everybody immediately in the West, especially, has a, a concept of obedience. That means I give up my individuality, I give up my own independence. And somebody else tells me what to do, mm-hmm. but. But that's not a biblical concept of obedience. A biblical concept of obedience is is submission to authority and healthy authority, (coughs) biblical authority, healthy authority, God's authority, not biblical authority, because they they have all sorts of examples in there, because it's all people. Um, But God's authority is, I love you, I care about you, I I want you to be perfect and unblemished that's a great that's a great way to put it i want you to be everything you can be how can we get there what can what can i do to make that possible can I teach you? you you can't do that hey guess what i gave you the holy spirit with christ all things are possible i that's the kind of headship that we're to come under mm-hmm. is the kind of headship that says i want to empower you and i want to see you fulfilling your purpose Let's stop talking about promotions and paychecks and positions. Let's start talking about passion and purpose. What's my passion in life? What's the purpose God created me for? And then he's going to make provision. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Passion, purpose, creates provision. Jason, we need you to come back like 12 times. Wow. Oh, God. (laughs) Thank you.